Hey everybody, and welcome to the Abstract Podcast. This is episode nine, and it's coming to you in the midst of a presidentless union. Um, we're still awaiting the results of the election, and we're going to talk about that coming up along with some other interesting topics. Um, I'm here joined, as always, with Javen, and uh, we will be getting into some topics talking about the election, talking about world changing, and talking about Christian responses to the past four years and the upcoming four years. So all that is coming and more. All right, Javen, first off, let's talk about the election. Um, first, at, a, at an anecdotal level, what have uh, what has been your experience of the last three days? Uh, yeah, it's been it's been really interesting. I was I've been thinking about I don't know. If, I think it's the first time I was old enough to vote. I, I may have been old enough to vote last time, mm-hmm. but I didn't. I was living in Oregon and I just didn't. So it's been really interesting. I feel like I've never um, like actively participated in this event, and by that I mean just like trying to keep up with the the map, who's winning, watching, trying to pay attention to what's going on. And I think just like the rest of the world or mm-hmm. the rest of the country, just feeling the weight of it. It's um, it's crazy. And I the word that just keeps coming back to me is just limbo. Like these last mm-hmm. well, like two days now, like we should know who the president is, but we don't. Right. And it's just like. I mean, we, Donald Trump is still the commander in chief, but right. in a in a very much more real cultural sense, it's like who is our leader? We don't know. <laughs> right? Yeah, I I would echo some of that. I I um, had a hard time trying to pin down exactly what I even was feeling um, through some of it, but it was this sense of like existential angst, um, kind of that limbo feeling, and in, in which it, it wasn't for me as much limbo about because I have anything invested in either of the candidates. Right. Um, but it's this, it, it's a, it's a feeling that seems common to the American people right now. Like people I'm with that I don't even have a conversation. Um, it's like you, you look at them and, and you get the idea that we're all kind of feeling the <laughs> yeah. same way and we're all not quite sure what the, what lies ahead um, after it. Um, yeah. Well, I hope that the things that we're about to get into, we kind of have two big topics we're going to mm-hmm. get into. And I hope that's going to help you process through that and me and maybe some of our listeners, too. So excited to go ahead and dive in. Um, it is Thursday, November 5. Mm-hmm. We're recording at about 1019 in the morning, and we do not know who the next president of the United States will be. We also don't know when we will know. No, we should. I mean, the very latest tomorrow night, at least the, the initial results will, will be coming in. But um the the president has already already hinted at going to Supreme Court and getting recounts and um and and those are within the boundaries to do so when yeah. it's so so who know it, it could be a little bit yet till we know for sure because right now it is we've had a polling disaster and and the race is if everything holds true right now by it'll a be polling t- disaster you mean as far as predictions yeah right. yeah yeah they it just something's gonna have to be rethought about how we do polling um. But as it stands right now, Biden is in line for 270 electoral votes, the minimum to take it, and Trump at 268. Um, so kind of worst case scenario as far as how the race is going to play out. Um, but then it generally looks like Democrats will maintain the House, but um, did see a decent amount of 
of red coming into the House, but they still maintain majority. And then majority is going to stay Republican Senate, it looks like. Yeah. So so we'll at least have some power balanced. Right. Which which yeah. I think is good. And I yeah, I think so too. All right. So this um <laughs> this is never perhaps more relevant than it is right this moment. There's this article written um just a few days ago by Timothy Oh boy. Daryl Mopel? I think it's Dalrymple. <laughs> Dalrymple, thank you. He is the president and CEO of Christianity Today. And um, he recently, I think it was like November the 2nd, mm-hmm. he wrote this piece called Why Evangelicals Disagree on the President. And I, I really wanted to have this conversation because this is something that I think all or almost all of us are experiencing very firsthand. Um, last night, I sat around the table with people who just really did not share a common worldview when, when we're talking about politics and what, mm-hmm. what the narrative is. I mean, I think we're, we're seeing this all over the place. We work with people. We go to school with people. We, we maybe even live with people that we just, we just are not telling the same story about what's happening here. I mean, you have people claiming just things that are, that are so different and, and to them, it seems so clear. And it's this, it's this breakdown of a shared reality. We no longer, I don't know if we ever did, but it's becoming very apparent that we, I mean, I would almost kind of from a communication perspective would say we don't live in the same world. Mm-hmm. We're not telling the same story. Our stories are not um, structured around the same thing. So mm-hmm. anyway, kind of with that in mind, this article I thought was really good. And um, I read it. I don't think you've really had a chance to read it yet. So I, I wanted know. to read down through some of it, Colin, and just kind of just kind of get your thoughts and, and we'll talk about it. But the idea here is that... um. The president and CEO of Christianity Today is kind of postulating that there, the way he sees it, there are kind of two, um, I don't know if camps is the right word, but two different um, places that Christians kind of come out. And he describes one as the renegade, which is kind of a different word that I wasn't really familiar with. And then the other is the um, the remnant. And he's he's trying to reconcile why it is that some Christians are so in, fa- so in favor of Donald Trump as a president. And when I say Christians, mm-hmm. we're actually talking pretty specifically about conservative evangelical Christians. This is not a this is not a, a spectrum wide debate. This is something that really like conservative Christians are having to wrestle with and disagree about. And and according to Google, renegant is ruling or reigning. Yeah. So I guess. yeah, thanks. That's gonna come up. So okay. renegant is this idea of Christians taking power in America and mm-hmm. and our faith having a real cultural power. And then remnant is more this idea that we lay down our power and our kingdom is just, it's not America at all. So these are kind of the two different perspectives. So with that said, I want to go ahead and read down through this a bit. Um, He says, one camp declares they cannot comprehend how men and women who share their faith could possibly support the incumbent, Trump. The other camp wonders how anyone nurtured by the word could reject the incumbent. The camps not only disagree, but cannot understand one another. Unable to see reason in the opposing view, each side asserts the other has succumbed to unreason, to prejudice, or to the lust for power or approval. Have you seen this, Colin? <laughs> I, I have. I ha- I've seen that. Moving down. Our inability to understand the rationality of an opposing viewpoint is more often a failure of imagination on our part than a failure of rationality on theirs. The difference between the camps cannot be that the one side is truly Christian while the other is not, or that either side possesses a monopoly on good ideas and good intentions. Countless men and women striving with every bone and tendon to follow Jesus stand on both sides. Which, I mean, I think right there 
you probably get at some of some of the issue at hand in which I don't know that would be said about, you know, you know, whether which, whichever side you're on, because you see it so clearly, you don't say that about the other yeah, side. I mean, I I was in a discussion on social media yesterday. I don't know if discussion is really the right word, but like it it was clear that the person I was communicating with said that if I don't vote for Donald Trump, I don't have a Christian perspective. Mm-hmm. And I mean, essentially, you're not saved right. because you're not in right relation if you don't vote for Donald Trump. And that's, you know, that's and, someone who sees it super clear. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I've seen extreme statements from from people that, I mean, even someone like a like a Shane Claiborne, like not quite to that extent. But basically, like, if you're a Christian, like, you, it's you can't. pretty much impossible. Like you can't in good conscience yeah, vote for right. him. So then, and, and so that's how you see each other. And then it's like, how are these people supposed to have yeah. peace with each other? And, and we're supposed to break bread together. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So first he's going to talk about the renegade. The church renegade sees the kingdom of God, which is the end towards which we strive, as a world in which men and women are free to follow their faith. Life is held sacred from conception to death. Families can raise their children in biblical truth. Excuse me. Churches take the lead in charity and government provides a stable order for the flourishing of meaningful enterprise. Members of the renegade are concerned with foreign and economic policy, but feel especially compelled to support the present administration for its stances on life and family. Failing to vote for the Republican empowers the sorry. Failing to vote for the Republican empowers the party that protects the appalling abortion regime and that advances a sexual ethic that leads to immense confusion and suffering. Let's see. Yeah, so then this final paragraph kind of sums it up. There is nothing essentially irrational or immoral in the position stated above. It leads the church renegade to place a higher value on the acquisition and use of political power. This view, They view the election as a starkly a battle between good and evil. The vices of the president seem small when the virtue of the world hangs in the balance. Winning political power means protecting the Christian way of life and sowing seeds of truth and goodness into culture, thus bringing God's blessing upon the land. Losing political power means the cultural spirals into deepening immorality and untruth, eroding the foundations of society and leading to greater suffering for all. For these friends, then, to undercut the support of the president is to undermine the power of Christians to shape policy in a manner that protects the church and and benefits the world. Wow, that was a lot of my voice talking, but... I would like to hear you respond to that. Yeah, and I think that's really fair. And um, one thing that I I try to do in the last couple of weeks some um, is uh, some some friends or people that I follow that would be farther right politically than me, um, trying to read you know lengthy explanations by them on their positions, and and I found that really refreshing in a way where um, where, where like you were saying like if you if you represent faithfully what they're actually trying to do with their vote and the way they're approaching it. There's a lot of them that I really, really respected. And while I would disagree with them on some things, I came to a place where I, I, I recognized, okay, it's not, it's not as simple as just one side's idolatrous and the other side isn't mm-hmm. or, or anything like that. Like there's nothing simple about it. Um, and and we'll get into that more, I'm sure, as we keep talking about that. Yeah, so I want to go ahead and, and then read kind of the, the second um, position outlined is the remnant. And the the author goes ahead and just identifies. He said this is the one that, you know, just so we know where he's coming from, this is the one that he um, supports kind of. The church remnant tends to come from places where Christianity is not the reigning cultural or political authority. 
These are generalizations, of course, but the church remnant trends to be younger, more diverse, and more urban than the church regnant. Regnant. That's a hard word. Members of the church remnant, which is what we're talking about here, are more likely to live on the margins of power, sometimes deliberately and sometimes by exclusion. And this contingent is larger than you might think. When evangelicals are defined by belief and all ethnicities are included, only 58% of evangelical supporters supported Trump in 2016, which is to say nothing of those who chose not to vote at all. So the church remnant is is captivated by a fundamentally different vision of the kingdom of God. The kingdom in this view is too sacred to be confused with winning elections and passing laws. It is not a political dispensation or social order. It is not a kingdom of this world. Instead, the kingdom breaks into time and space when men and women sent by the king seek the lost and serve the least. The kingdom of heaven is among us when we speak the gospel in word and deed, serve the homeless and the refugee, and come alongside our suffering neighbors. For the church remnant, the kingdom of God is less about the acquisition of power than the divestment of power, laying down our rights and privileges as Christians, as Christ did in Philippians 2, in order to serve the powerless. In other words, Christendom is not the kingdom, the represent- and representing Christendom is not the same as representing Christ. The kingdom of heaven is not about the sword, but about the cup, not about defending ourselves, but about dying to ourselves. The church remnant would rather the church lose its influence than its integrity, even if the loss of religious liberties were to lead to persecution. When has persecution ever defeated the church? Surely the same God who spoke the stars into being, who has preserved the church around the world for 2,000 years, can preserve the American church for at least four years of political exile. The church only ever dies from within. And that is the second view, the church Mm -hmm. as remnant. What do you think of that? Yeah, um, I was thinking of the... Because some some of what it has seemed in, and this is probably more anecdotally, but I I think there's good data on it too. But some of this is evident in a generation gap. Um, I I think in that, you know, the generation above me tended to maybe be more in the in the renegade camp. Not not for better or for worse, but I'm just right. that's might be where more where it was located. Well, I mean, he and, pointed that out too. The other camp tends to be younger, more diverse, oh, yeah, you know, true. urban. Yeah, yeah, and and I think. I, and, I, and so what what happened I think is is when that when when there was a putting a place of of trumpism at such a high priority um, that really turned off your younger voters and then um, you know you have a, a democratic platform that has more to do with health care and poverty alleviation to where I think if we're for you know that that was easy for them to make the move to there while ignoring maybe some of the the problems with that camp too so I don't yeah. know. I, I think this. I think what he's getting at has a lot to do with a, a generational gap and and how, yeah, how 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 the two generations come at it very differently, and and it has a lot to do with what you prioritize. Yeah, I mean, I think that's that's. I didn't read obviously the whole article, but that's that's the thrust of it. Is that mm-hmm. we 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 have a lot of the same values when we talk about these kind of two competing ways of going about this. But the priority, the prioritizing of these values is different, and that that looks significantly different in how we kind of how we come out. I, also, to what you were saying, I heard Phil Vischer. I was listening to the Holy Post this morning, and he mm-hmm. was talking about exactly what you said. It seems like a lot of young Christian evangelicals mm-hmm. are just—they're so turned off by Trump and yeah. Trumpism that they're they're running into the arms of like progressive liberals. Mm-hmm. Completely rejecting conservatism outright, 
and Vischer was pointing out like that's not good either. Right. <laughs> but yeah, it's what's happening. Yeah, 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 for sure. And and so he goes on then just to. Well, so what is his conclusion then about how to how to move forward? So I threw in a paragraph here. The last radical act in a radically polarized age is to love and understand both sides. And that's no small calling. 2020 has already left a lot of wreckage in its wake. Reach out to those who disagree with you and demonstrate the love of Christ. Whatever the outcome, we will need to work together to bring the kingdom of God into the ruins and help our people find hope again. Yeah, I think I would agree with that. But I think I would add a little something to it. Um, more than just love and understanding both sides. Um, I, I think that's that's super important. But I, I think one thing that's going to be really important coming through this is not just love and understanding, but it's going to be repentance. Um, like with our conversation with Dr. Herringer the other day, I remember, or with your conversation with him, um, I know you've talked some about, and I would agree with this, that, that the methodology of how a Christian comes to who they're going to vote for is really paramount. And and frankly, I think we've seen more than people trying to just live out their values and and faithfully live a Christian witness and use their vote as a way to to amplify their Christian witness. I think we've there's places we've seen that, but I think a lot of what we've seen though is an idolatry of the partisanship. Yeah. Um, in which we are united more by what we stand against and what we hate than what than being a presence of love. And, yeah. and that needs to be repented of. And there's no way forward for the church, I don't think, without that. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but what this makes me think of, and I know a lot of people will disagree with me on this, and that's, that's fine. But, like, Herringer pointed out on the last episode, like, he doesn't have a problem with you, with with folks who who do the work in their heart and come to the place where they, they vote for Donald Trump because, mm-hmm. like, because of these issues that they prioritize, right. abortion, religious liberty. Yeah. But he said he really does have a problem with folks who go to boat parades, who decorate themselves, you know, in Trump paraphernalia, who embrace the identity wholesale. Mm -hmm. I think his words were, there's enough to mourn about the character of Donald Trump and what it's doing to the nation that as a Christian, to wholesale wrap yourself in that Mm -hmm. identity, that is not a good idea. And I, I completely agree with that. Yeah. And honestly, that's something I've been kind of wrestling through this election is like, you know, they have the I voted stickers mm-hmm. whenever you go to the polling place. And man, I've just become really convinced, like, go, if, if it is your job to vote, and I did vote, go vote and shut up about it. Like, mm-hmm. you don't have to identify with the candidate that you voted for. You don't have to become encumbered <laughs> by that person wholesale. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So like, honestly, at least for me, what, what I thought was the best thing was just go vote And then, like, move on. And, I mean, Mm -hmm. have discussions like we're having now, but you don't have to parade who you voted for and make it such an integral part of who you are. And I think that's where the repentance piece comes in for me because um, I do think you could, as a Christian in good conscience, vote for Donald Trump um, or or vice versa. And But I, I I think what needs to happen then, though, like, if you do that, maintain your Christian witness and the ways that got you there and how you approach that president. Um, So if it's Donald Trump, hold him on the falsities that are spewed daily, yeah. hold him on, you know, the, the misogyny, hold him on, you know, the way he talks about immigrants, the way, you know, you, you have to continue in that consistency. And, and I think that's the part that, that, that would bother me the most, um, in which it's, to me, it's idolatry in when 
if you get the candidate in that you want, you can stop being a prophetic voice or trying to carry a Christian witness. Right. As long as they're doing what you want them to do, however they're doing it, that's not the big deal. It's that they're doing it. Yeah, um, it's that they're owning the other mm-hmm. side, you know. Yeah. yeah, and to me that is uniting around hate and that is antithetical to the Christian life. Yeah, and I think it, it makes if, – if the church has any prophetic voice left, which I think it does – I think it, it just erodes that mm-hmm. almost almost yeah. completely. Yeah, to where like, I mean, for me, like, okay, so yeah, 80% of white evangelicals can vote for Trump. That's a large portion and it's the largest voting block in America. But can that same voting block, you know, for me, that's not the problem as long as they're consistent and then hold that, you know, hold hold that same line um, of ethical reasoning to him and his day, to the president and his daily interactions yeah. and, and his policies. So... Yeah, yeah. I, I think one, one thing I wanted to say was, you know, I think what I've observed and one one practical lesson, I think, I don't know if I like the word practical lesson, but I'll go with it, that we, we can take from this is, you know, when, when you interact in groups of people, like try to understand that mm-hmm. even though maybe we all look the same, not everybody thinks about this the same way. And what, yeah. what seems so clear and obvious to you, like the guy on Facebook the other day who said that. I wasn't a Christian or mm-hmm. or didn't have a Christian mindset because I don't vote for Donald Trump. Like, don't create a cultural space. And by that, I mean, like, even just around a dinner table or, you know, if you're hanging out with friends, don't create a cultural space in which you make it normative to believe your way. Mm-hmm. And you consider anyone else and like by your speech, you consider anyone else an idiot who doesn't. Because yeah. if we've seen anything this year, it's that people with different experiences I mean, it doesn't even take much, I guess. People who are a little bit different, they just don't see things as black and white as you. And mm-hmm. I think it just it's so easy to create these abrasive situations where the language that you're using makes it clear to them that, you know, they can't be in with you mm-hmm. unless they hold your view. Yeah. Yeah, and to to what you're saying earlier along that same lines is it it is like it, think of it as you might be sitting down with someone who literally lives in a different reality. Yeah. Um, because because a lot of reality is constructed with our with our social media platforms and things like that. And that for me, I'm doing some reading about that and and the amount of perception gap between parties is unbelievable. Like if the the amount of like what a Republican thinks a Democrat is and what a Democrat thinks a Republican is like, yeah. the perception gap is so different than what you actually once you a Republican self identifies and a Democrat self identifies. And you saw, you know, so for, so for that, you already see, okay, there's two different realities that are super clear, like it's, it's overwhelming. And then even even just with this election, you know, like the day before, or two days before, there was a survey released in which uh, 80, you know, I mean, it's like it was over 90% of Democrats thought they were going to, to win the election yeah. and over 90% yeah. of Republicans thought they were. And they're looking, and, and yeah, it's... It is just a different reality, a different way of coming about it. And and I think that's what you say is right. I think you need to have that in your mind when you sit down and have these conversations is that someone may literally kind of be living in a different reality yeah. than you. And 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 maybe he's not crazy for living in a different reality. Yeah. I kind of put in a shameless plug here. Um, I'm really excited. There's this online blog publishing called The Revolution. And um, Chris Whitmer is the editor of it. Oh, yeah. And um, I'm actually writing an article for them that's going to run soon, so I'm really excited about that. But it, it, what it's about is just the ways that literally, I mean, I think 
it's it's hard to overstate this, but the world that we inhabit as persons is constructed by our narrative of the world. Like the stories that we're telling, the way that we locate ourselves within those stories, that literally builds the world that with which within which you live. And um, me and Colin were sitting in the studio. I don't know. It was yesterday, or the day before. And, he pulled up this really cool website where yeah, I was going to mention that. Yeah, you can see you can see a social media feed based on values. Like you can drag the little cursor all the way to the left and see like a super liberal progressive Twitter feed, mm-hmm. or you can drag it all the way over to the right and see like an alt right conspiracy theory kind of news feed. And like, I mean, that is like the greatest demonstration of what I'm talking about. The stories that you're telling, the narratives that you believe in, they not only compose your world, they they literally compose who you are. But then it's when these different realities that we've constructed collide with the other, <laughs> sparks really, really can fly if we don't enter into that with grace. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And so just so you know, for that that tool, we'll either link it in the show notes or I'll just mention it here. I have it pulled up. But you can drag it, a cursor, which you would see the, the Twitter feed of, of you can go the, the right extreme is the alt-right, and then you can go all the way to the far left in the socialist, and then you have leftist, progressive, liberal, centrist, moderate, conservative, right-winger. Um, you just got a lot of, uh, and it's really helpful. You kind of get an understanding a little bit about the different realities that people are construed by because more often than not, um, your social media platform Pretty much is an echo chamber for unless you're intentional about yeah. not making it there. Yeah. So, um, and so in that way, it always just is affirming that your narrative is correct. So that that site yeah. is socialbubble.so, one word socialbubble.so, and so, that's where the tools at. Man, this reminds me of this this book I was reading. Um, it was called Thinking Fast and Slow by Daniel Kahneman. And I think I mentioned it, but mm-hmm. he tells a story in there about how what we just described, it's it's literally, it's also like biological. There was this professor who had this idea. I think it was a theory he was developing and he was telling it to his students. And I, I forget exactly how to say what it was, but basically they conspired against him and said, we're going to use this against him to see if it actually works. And so the way they did it was the professor... Um, whenever he would move toward the right side of the room, they would pay close attention Mm -hmm. to what he was saying. And like everybody was zoned in and looking at him. Whenever he would pace over to the left side, they would all zone out and like look bored or fall asleep and not pay attention. And what they found was that by the end of the semester, by doing this repeatedly, 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 he was like literally lecturing out the door on the right side of the room because Mm -hmm. he, he was getting what he needed. What he wanted was that engagement. He was getting that by moving to the right side of the room. And so like, it's not only like a social thing. It's like it's inside of you. Yep. It's your makeup. That's the way we are yep. programmed. We want to get what we need. Yeah, yeah, and and that's what that's what I think could be the good fruits of this election. In which, I mean, even just from reading some of the just some of the baseline of statistics of how people voted and which demographics voted which way, I'm recognizing different ways. I was just I was way off, and and like you just got to rethink it then. Um, yeah. Do you want to go through any of that? Like, do you have that pulled up? Yeah. Or maybe I you can, just remember it. it yeah. Was, well, I can kind of remember it. Basically, there, there's a, there's a narrative which I did not necessarily adopt wholesale, but I saw, I, I at least thought it was more true than false. Um, in that your white male voter is moving towards Trump, and your minorities are moving left um, towards Biden. Yeah. And so far, it's exactly the opposite. The the <laughs> movement. Towards Trump was white males, and no, no. Or the movement towards Biden. Sorry, I said that wrong. The movement towards Biden was white males, um, but Trump got the Latino vote primarily because of 
Cuban Latinos in in uh, in or that's how he got Florida's Cuban uh, Latinos and and he saw women move towards him a little bit and again these are not large movements but they're I mean they're a little bit outside the margin of error yeah um, so I mean it's not like there's a huge it's not hugely disruptive but it's it at least is enough that 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 dominant narrative is just wrong. Yeah. Um, it's just not true of how people voted so thus far. We're not as true as we thought. Not it was. as true as we yeah. thought. Yeah. Okay. So we have about 15 minutes left. I really want yeah. to get to this other article that you mentioned um, by Andy Crouch, mm-hmm. if I remember right. So yeah, do you want to walk us through that? Sure. Um, so Andy Crouch is read everything he writes. Um, he it's really good stuff. But he deals a lot. He writes a lot about culture and image of God is a lot and and technology and that's kind of where his intersection is. Um, he works for Praxis, which I don't have them pulled up, but you can you can Google them and find them. Um, but he he has this book called Culture Making, which fun fact gets a shout out in a Lecrae song. Um, Seriously? Yeah, yeah. Um, anyway, but but it, in it he outlines kind of um, he he outlines four four typical um, approaches Christian approaches towards culture, and then he kind of um, he offers a twofold um, movement forward in a in a better way to to move I don't want to say engage with culture because that's that's the one thing he tries to shy away from right off the get-go and, and the reason he does that um, which you could talk to this too but one of the main reasons is is when we talk about engage the culture a lot of times we talk about it's it's not a fair assessment of the word culture in that it assumes that culture is monolithic and that it can be and simply outside of us and outside right. of us yeah. and that we are not shaped and formed within that culture um, and that that we are somehow objective to that culture, um, yeah. To where to where we are not guilty in some of the same sins and idolatries that our culture is. Sure. I mean, that's something I've really been fascinated with this semester, been learning about, is that kind of the um, modern. And when I say modern, I don't mean contemporary, but modern in the sense of modernism way of defining society was that the individual exists as a, um, a primary thing apart from mm-hmm. society and that society is made up of a collection of individuals who have an identity that they impose and bring together and that's the society. And then if the individual walks back out of society, he's the same as when he walked in. Mm-hmm. And we just really, <laughs> I don't think that's, that's not the view anymore. And that's really wrong. But we tend to still sort of use that language. Like we have to understand that as much as we affect culture, culture affects us. There is no right. individual apart from the culture. We are... It's a relationship, and, and I think I mean just to quickly tie that in. I mean that that was the whole idea in 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 the garden, in that the whole mandate of 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 you know the first humans was to create culture and create yeah. flourishing, and they were caught up in that themselves. Like that that is humans have always existed within culture, and that's always been the job of of the image of God is to make culture. Um, so anyway, we'll get into that more um, later, but the first, uh, I'll quick walk through these four ways he, he talks about that we approach it. Um, yeah, do you want to take them one by one or do you want to go through all four? Let's go one by one yeah, first. Sure. Um, he says the first one is that we might condemn culture um, as the fundamentalists of the early 20th century. Um, that means, among other things, withdrawing from cultural institutions ranging um, from entertainment industry to politics. And while this strategy may temporarily protect us and our children from the influence of culture, um, it'll likely have no effect on culture. Um, people do not give up cultural goods simply because someone condemns them. Um, so that's that's his first movement, um, and that is to condemn culture. Um, 
and to withdraw um, to kind of make uh, to to create a faithful remnant that that can last. So, any thoughts on that approach? Yeah, I'm I'm looking down through if this is the one I thought it was. I yeah, know. So yeah, when, when we it. talk about um, where's the one? Oh yeah, okay. So I'm thinking about copy culture. Yeah, yeah, condemning culture. I see that a lot. I think it's it can be really frustrating. But just as I think this, I don't know. I think it stems from this idea, like we we're talking about, that that the individual is, exists apart from culture. That there's not this relationship, and that we can stand outside of it, shake our fingers, and and shout it down, and that's. You know, it turns into things like condemning Hollywood mm-hmm. wholesale or condemning R-rated movies or non-Christian music. Mm-hmm. And it's just like, it's just not really a helpful approach. And I think, like, it's easy to to, to just that be the default. Um, but but I think there is something to be said. Like, it's, it's, an, it's a modern phenomenon. Like, um, you know, Christians have long led the way in, in many of the biggest institution shapers of cultures, um, you know, in the scientific community. Some of the biggest, most influential findings were by Christians. They led the way in that. Um, all our Ivy Leagues, except one, were started by yeah, Christians. I mean, I mean, art, right? Like. Art. Think of all our, um, <laughs> and then think of all our hospitals, St. Mary's, St. Joseph's. Yeah. You know, um, Christians have long been the forefronts of, of creating culture that, that promotes human flourishing. And it's been a fairly modern thing, um, this movement of condemning culture. So and, that's his first. I mean, we don't have hours here, but I think yeah. where this gets conflated is this idea of, of entering into culture, but see, like that doesn't necessarily mean you have to see the Christian church as a political entity, which yeah. is seeking to be empowered. Yeah. And that's where it gets tricky. Yeah. yeah. Another shameless plug here. I also just finished writing a piece on the lettuce worship movement. Mm-hmm. And um, I've decided to do this thing where I'm going to start charging for some of the more controversial pieces. So mm-hmm. if you're interested in looking at the lettuce worship movement from a more critical perspective, um, I'm writing something about that. You can probably read soon. Yeah, check that out. Um, okay, moving on, number two. Alternatively, so the first one's condemned. Second one is critique culture. Um, so this strategy engages culture in a conversation akin to that of Francis Schaeffer and others in the mid-20th century. Um, and Crouch contends that this approach, um, while it's valuable for understanding and conversing with culture, it is limited in its effect um, because it tends to fall into the erroneous academic assumption that once you've analyzed a thing, you have changed it. And, and I think that's, that's a, a really important point um, in that. And that, I think that's a weakness I see sometimes um, in which, yeah, for, for Christian thinkers, like you get into something and, and you critique it and you break it down and then it's left there. And it, it doesn't do anything to form something, anything new um, in your movement within that. But anyway, we got to keep going. Yeah, sure. And he mentioned um, Francis Schaeffer. Mm-hmm. And then I also pointed out Nancy Piercy, which I think was his student. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. they're big champions of this kind of stuff. And yeah. I guess in my own, I've just found it pretty unhelpful. Like, Saving Leonardo yeah. was a book by Nancy Piercy. And yeah, and Francis Schaeffer. This is kind of line. I mean, I almost think it kind of falls under the condemning culture. It's It's pretty similar there. Not that helpful. Third, we might copy culture. In this case, we adopt the forms of culture, but replace it, but replace its offensive content with content of our own. A 20th century example is contemporary Christian music. This strategy, however, tends only to feed a Christian subculture with knockoff cultural products that is always a few steps behind the mainstream. The effect on culture at large is minimal. 
And I think the main argument there is when you have that approach, you can only create culture to the degree in which culture has already been created and you can subvert it for your own purposes. But everything that's copied from the original loses a little bit. So Yeah. I mean, I think I'm all about subverting culture and like, I mean, maybe even repurposing, like finding ways where you can you can push back and make something new within a space. But I think what he's talking about here with the copying culture, we see this no more clearly than contemporary Christian music or let us all shake our heads like Christian filmmaking kind mm-hmm. of thing. You know, like it's like, well, that's bad, but we'll make our own. <laughs> it's like, yeah. Meh. Yeah. No, not to say not. I shouldn't be so cynical of like yeah, not, Christian not music, bad, yeah. not for sure. But like yeah. this is where you get a lot of the people making fun of Christian films just yeah. because it's so obvious, like the God's not dead kind of stuff. Yeah, because some of my, I mean, some of my favorite artists have come out of some of this movement. So, so definitely not right. not all bad. Right. Um, final strategy uh, in which he says uh, Christians approach culture is to consume culture st- strategically in an effort to influence cultural markets in positive ways. The underlying assumption is that if Christians in sufficient numbers patronize positive cultural products and avoid harmful ones, they can steer the culture in healthy directions. However, in the contemporary global marketplace, this strategy also proves to be ineffective. So an example would be just kind of the movement to quickly boycott um, based off of whatever's political views or or things like a store's political views, things like that. and and to try to use your your capital to to only consume things that are going to further a culture that you believe in. Gotcha. So Crouch offers these four critiques of of ways we should not be going about mm-hmm. it necessarily. What would be his suggestion? Yeah, I'll try to quick run through it. But he says he calls us first to distinguish between gestures and posture. Um, in which he says a gesture is an appropriate response to a particular cultural artifact or good. Um, some should be condemned and some should be critiqued. Um, and then he also says, just be careful that your gestures do not necessarily become your postures towards all of culture. So if you critique a cultural artifact, don't let it become your posture towards all of cultural artifacts. Like me in Christian movies. Yes. Um, and, and then uh, the second insight is that the only way to change culture is to create culture. Um, mm-hmm. yeah. In which, uh, you know, and, and I would love to talk about this more about even the term change the world and why I don't like that that term. Um, but we may not have time to get into that yeah, as I, much as we want to. One of my favorite analogies I heard from a professor here on campus, um, Dr. Warner, described, you know, if, if we think about culture as a ship and if we think about it as a, as a sinking ship, I think a large... Uh, for a long time, we viewed our job as to save people off of a sinking ship. Like, mm-hmm. we got to grab them off and get them going to heaven because this place is going down. Mm-hmm. And really, the better approach is to rebuild the ship. Yeah. You know, we don't we don't want to give up on this place. And we could talk about pre-tribulation rapture, yeah. and, you know, kind of all this, the way that fields in. But it's, in. Yeah. it's this, this ethic of, you know, in the Garden of Eden, we're, we're called to make order and to expand the garden. And we, we go out into the world. And push the boundaries of the garden outwards mm-hmm. and keep making, not saving people out. Yeah, I think that's a good approach. And, and kind of the the just helpful tension that I think is good to just have in a Christian's mind is is have is have that, what you're talking about with the garden, and then have um, the fall as well, in which you recognize that every person is going to create culture and every person is 
created in the image of God to where something, you know, th- there is something of reflecting the image of God. And at the same time, every single human is, is, is fallen and has, has a, a state of nature that, that is a direct result of, of sin. And so as Christians, then you will both resonate and defy culture mm-hmm. um, and cultural artifacts. And, and so that means that you're going to defy some, you know, there's going to be Christian culture made that, or quote unquote, Christian culture, Christian cultural artifacts made that uh, you should defy because they're not good. And then there's going to be ones that are made by in secular arenas that yeah. can be affirmed because they represent something of, of the image of God. Yeah. You know, um, so I was going to point this out. And I forgot, you know, when you were sliding that thing between liberal mm. and alt-right, you know, what there wasn't, <laughs> there was no slider for where you slide it for the kingdom of God, mm-hmm. right? Like the kingdom of God is something that it exists in the midst and in spite of mm-hmm. that spectrum. And it's not like you locate it right in the middle of those two things. It's yeah. it's a higher way, but it's in this world too. Yeah. That's why, yeah. Jesus is not a centrist. I think it's important <laughs> yeah. to say. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. All right. That wraps it up for us here on episode nine. Thank you guys so much for being with us. If you bought a coffee mug, you should be getting it this week. They came in. They look pretty cool. We look forward to seeing you guys again next week, episode 10 on season three. And hopefully by then we'll have a commander in chief. Until then, peace.